Good morning. I'm Marian, and I'm going to read God's word for us today from 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's found on page 270 of the Church Bible, the Christian Standard Bible. Now, this is a well-known account to most of us, and the character in uh, Uriah, we normally know him as Uriah the Hittite, and it, here it's called Uriah the Hittite. Um, the uh, Hittites were the children of Hittite, and why I'm telling you this is that the other people reading from other translations, and so that's why the difference there. So let's read from chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, When you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? 
Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? Then Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubesheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David, The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Good morning, Church at Nine. It's a bit of a shocking passage, isn't it, to be confronted with this morning? Why don't you pray with me as we open this part of God's Word together? Father, we thank you for your good word to us, and we pray now that as we uh, reflect on this dark moment in Israel's history, uh, that you will help us to listen with open hearts, willing ears, change our minds and our lives by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, my name's Greg, I'm one of the ministers here at, uh, at OEC, uh, Church of Four in particular. Uh, please, uh, in your handouts, there's an outline of the talk so you can follow where we're going. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, that's what we're looking at today. Um, so it's been suggested that the great paradox of our modern world is this, uh, that everything is both, at the same time, better and worse than ever before. So in the past 100 years, uh, global life expectancy has actually doubled. Uh, in 2019, it's an all-time, it was at an all-time high of 72 years across the globe. Now, part of that is also because child mortality rates have dropped significantly. In 1800, half of the world's children died before the age of five just in 1800. In 1950, that improved to one in four across the globe, now less than 5% of children die before the age of five. Uh, literacy levels have skyrocketed in the last 200 years. 200 years ago, 88 of the world's population couldn't read. Now, we're sitting at about 10%. Uh, also, you don't need to go far back in human history to get to a time when people in Western societies mostly ate uh, a diet of grains and porridge and carrots and onions and potatoes, and that was about it. Now we cruise the aisles of supermarkets, choosing from an unbelievable range of foods and so-called foods. Uh, but at the same time, things are worse than ever before. Mental health issues like anxiety and depression are higher than they've ever been. It's fairly well accepted that we're going through a mental health epidemic. Uh, one in five of the world's children and youth are suffering some sort of mental health condition. Not only that, it's clear our world community, we're, we're facing a crisis in terms of climate. Uh, 
uh, in terms of food security, in terms of food supply and energy and waste. How well's a mess? The reason behind this great paradox is actually another paradox, and that's the paradox of humanity itself. Humanity is capable of so much good and so much evil all at the same time. We are the glory of the world. We are the scourge of the world. We create nuclear technology that has the amazing capacity to treat cancers that we thought before before were a death sentence, and then we use similar technology to threaten world extinction. People can be profoundly generous and sacrificial and caring and giving, creatively put, uh, put their resources and their time to alleviate poverty and pain and suffering, and then undo everything with acts of greediness and selfishness and arrogance. Humanity is a blessing and a curse to our world. And these two paradoxes help us to appreciate the lesson that this, these two chapters confront us with, that we so often don't want to hear, and that is that we're not up to the task of ruling our world. We aren't. Last week... Uh, If you were here, we left King David with a stunning promise that God had given him. A promise that he would reverse the curse of the world through his kingly line. That a king would come from his line that would bring blessing to the nations. Uh, In the intervening chapters that we're skipping uh, over this week, uh, chapters 8 to 10 in 2 Samuel, we see God at work beginning to fulfil these promises that he'd made to David. And in no small way, chapters 8 and chapter 10, the enemies of God's people are subdued. God's bringing about increasing peace and rest and security for his people, for God's people. In chapter 9, in that middle passage, we see the compassion and the generosity of David, God's king, as he takes a cripple, Mephibosheth, a descendant of Saul, under his wing and makes sure that he's cared for and fed at his table. David's a king who brings mercy and justice, and peace, and security. In 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, we see this description of the rule and reign of David, where it says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. So when we're confronted by the evil acts of David in 2 Samuel 11, we need to remember that this is not the tale of a desperately terrible man but a great man who falls into terrible, terrible sin. David's sin, chapter 11, begins with temptation, as it does for all of us. David's at home. His army's off fighting war for him. He's safe and secure with his wives and children in the palace in Jerusalem. David gets out of bed in the evening. Did you notice that? That raises questions, doesn't it? What's he doing in bed in the evening? That's a bit strange, but anyway... Let's keep going. He he strolls around the roof of the palace and he looks down and sees a woman bathing and wants to spend time with her. He inquires about her, finds out that she's married. Now, it doesn't think, oh, well, she's married. I've got plenty of wives already. I'll just leave her alone. No, he wants Bathsheba. He wants Eliam's daughter. He wants Uriah's wife. Must have her, sends servants to get her, sleeps with her commits adultery with her. David uses her and he thinks he's got away with adultery 
And then weeks later, David gets a message from Bathsheba, three short words that just rocked his world. I am pregnant. David can't be found guilty of adultery, not the king of Israel, no. Bathsheba can't be found guilty of adultery, the shame that would come upon her. The whole problem needs a solution. So David summons Bathsheba's husband from the battle lines at Rabbah and this man he's deeply sinned against and then has dinner with him. And once you're right, to go home and sleep with his wife and if that happens, then the whole sin's covered. It's okay, it's good. But plan A fails because Uriah is more noble than David. Did you notice that? David's happy, living, sleeping, resting in a palace while his army at war. But Uriah will do no such thing. No, he sleeps at the palace steps. So David hatches plan B, which is really plan A on steroids, isn't it? Let's get him over for dinner again. Let's get him drunk. But even drunk Uriah is more righteous than David and doesn't go home to his wife. Now, David, at this point, he could give up, couldn't he? He could confess his sin and say, I've done the wrong thing. Face the music. But no, he has, he's the king. He has power. And he will use that to protect himself and his lover. So plan C sends Uriah with his own death warrant back to the battle line. Uriah is sent to the front of battle, too close to the wall of the city, and they lay siege to it, and he and a number of other soldiers die. Killed by the Ammonites, yes, but killed by the plan of David the king. Plan C worked. Uriah's dead. David lets Bathsheba mourn for her husband and then promptly marries this woman that she's committed, he's committed adultery with, whose husband he murdered. There's a really interesting line at the end of chapter 11 that gives a window into the heart of David as he's committing these sins. Verse 25, as David sends an encouragement to Joab after the loss of a number of good men in battle to ensure Uriah's death. Have a look at what he says. He says to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. There's a more literal translation that goes more like this. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. David has implicated Joab in this plot to kill Uriah. Joab knows it. But David wants him to know that he doesn't consider what has happened to be evil in his eyes. And he doesn't want Joab to think that either. David has excused his sin, justified his evil, reframed it so it's okay in his eyes. He's deceived himself, excused himself, wants Joab to do the same. But God's not blind. Notice that all the way through chapter 11 to the very last verse, God's not mentioned once. God's forgotten. God's ignored. But verse 27, we're told God has been watching the whole time. The Lord considered what David had done to be evil, or more literally, what David had done was evil in God's eyes. God sees. God knows. He always does. And God does something about what he has seen. He lets Nathan know that he has a message for the anointed king. And so Nathan tells this parable of a rich, arrogant man who takes and takes and takes and kills this lamb of a poor neighbour. David hears the story and he's furious. 
as the Lord lives, the man must die. And he can't believe the evil that he's heard, the blatant sin of the man in the story that Nathan tells him. David is blinded to his own sin. He can't see his own, but he sees the sin of another and he sees it so clearly, doesn't he? He sees the evil for what it is. He's outraged, incensed the man's justice. And then comes a shattering word from Nathan. Once again, four short words. You are the man. David, you are the man you just condemned to death. Nathan unpacks for David the nature of the evil things that he has done in 12 verses 8 to 10. God has given him everything he has, so much power, so a whole kingdom, wives, everything. But verse 9, he despises God's command. He knows the command not to commit adultery. He knows the command not to commit murder, not to lie, not to covet, but he despises those commands, hates their control over him and his actions, and ignores them. He hates God's words. Verse 10, David despised not only the command of God, but God himself. As he murders, as he takes, he shows in his heart that he despises the God who has given him so much. David's sin is shocking. We're meant to shake our heads. A terrible abuse of power and privilege. His actions are truly evil. But are we like David? David was unable to see his own sin until he saw it in someone else. Uh, Do we look at the sin of David and shake our head when really we need to see that when we look at David, we're looking at ourselves? We're looking in the mirror. Because the sin of David is the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin that we too commit. In the shocking sin of King David, we see the damaged and weak human nature that we share with him. David wanted something so bad, he stopped at nothing to get it. He, he excused himself. He lied to himself, deceived himself, justified his actions. After all, hadn't he earned this pleasure? Isn't he the king? Don't other people do this anyway? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this about the human heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Lies are the language of our heart. And we believe the lies we tell ourselves so that we can take the things we want to take. So that we can excuse the things we want to excuse. When we're shocked by the evil of King David, we need to be shocked at our own evil hearts too. But so often we're blinded to it. We're like a man looking for margarine in the fridge. You know the story, don't you? You know, we've all done it, haven't we, boys? You know, go and get that thing out of the fridge. Can't see it. It's not there. We think we're looking, but actually everybody else can see, but we can't. Because we've deceived ourselves and like David, we are not evil in our own eyes. This is what Jesus said about the human heart. From Mark chapter 7, from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts and sexual immoralities and thefts and murders and adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. That's you and me. That's our heart. There is in human nature a greater capacity for evil than we first think and we need to be shocked by it so that we can be shocked by the mercy of God. 
We've witnessed the rank sin of David, the murder, the adultery, the misuse of power and privilege. He unwittingly condemned himself to death when he said that the, the man who, in Nathan's story, deserved to die, and he was right, the penalty for murder in the law that applied to God's people in God's land was death. The penalty for adultery is the same in God's law for God's people in God's land as death. David's deserving of the death penalty twice over. The depth, the reality of his sin hits David right between the eyes, verse 13. And then we get another short sentence that floors David, this time from his own lips, where he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, these six words are a genuine confession of David because he knows that those six words are enough to condemn him to death. But David's response... But God's, God's response to David's sin is as shocking as the sin itself. And I'm not talking about the judgment that David and his family experienced. I'm talking about the mercy that he's shown. But before we consider the shocking mercy of God, a quick look at the judgment of God in these verses. 12 verse 10, just as David used the sword to murder Uriah, so God says the sword will never depart from your family. But the hardest judgment to stomach in this passage is the death of this newborn child. Because, because of David's sin, a newborn child dies. How can we come to terms with the nature of that judgment? The consequences of this judgment bring terrible suffering to so many people. At some level... What we can say is that the judgment we see here does fit the crime. The Lord has promised to bless David's house and we see the judgment fall upon David's house. David, didn't, uh, David despised the commands, the words of God, and so the focus of the judgment is on the very house that God had promised to David. Verse 11, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family, more literally from your own house. And the death of the child, well, the child is most likely the son that David would love to make king after him, in line with the promises of God, and he's taken away. Having said all that, though, I've got no comfortable answers to the questions and concerns that this chapter presents. It's confronting. It's hard. That God would take the life of a newborn in judgment for David's sin. There's no easy answers in this chapter. However, we should not be quick to point the finger at what we consider to be the injustice of God. We, who, like David, are guilty of so much, who are we to question the God that has again and again demonstrated his righteousness, his justice and his mercy? We can trust him. And David, after the death of this child, worships God. Before, in his sin, he despised God, then he worships him. But after experiencing God's judgment... He's content with the wisdom of God and trusts his goodness. Maybe there's something we can learn from David in this chapter after all. But it's the mercy of God that's truly shocking in chapter 12. Look at what Nathan says to David in verse 13. After David has confessed the sin that he has committed, the sins he's committed, the Lord has taken away your sin. Like, how can God take away this sin? How can he show him mercy? He deserves to die. His sin is horrific. He's used power for himself. How can God just forgive? How can he just take his sin away? Not because David deserves it. He doesn't deserve it. God takes it away because God delights in forgiving the sinner, which is good news for those of us who are confronted with our own sin here this morning. 
because God loves to delight in our forgiveness as well. David's an adulterer, a murderer, a despiser of God, and God forgives him. God delights in your forgiveness as well, in our forgiveness. What we need to do is just face the horror of our sin, the shocking reality, the way that we treated those around us, and our God confess our sin, and in Jesus we find lasting forgiveness. It's a stunning mercy that he offers to us all, not just to David. But there's more going on in these chapters because while we might see ourselves in David and in his forgiveness, David's no ordinary man. He is God's anointed king. David is a hero of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament never paints their heroes flawlessly, perfectly. They're broken, real sinners. We see in David the paradox of the human condition, capable of so much good, capable of so much evil. God promised that it was through the house of David that the whole world would be blessed. But in chapter 12, we see God curse the house of David. And this curse echoes through the rest of 2 Samuel, as we'll continue to read it in this next few weeks. The sword does not leave David's house. As we continue to walk with David through 2 Samuel, we'll see this curse from Nathan come true in his household. And in 1 and 2 Kings, we see the sin of David repeat itself again and again and again, the arrogance of power the use of people, kings despising God, despising his words, the self-deception of sin, the cheap price that they put on human life again and again, and the blindness of desire that excuses profound evil. So what's going to become of this promise of God to David's line? Could God seriously consider still fulfilling his promise through this kingly line when it's like this? How can a king in the line of David bring about the fulfilment of God's promises? But God confirms his promise to David again and again and again through the rest of the Old Testament. But what this chapter does highlight is that we need a king unlike David. That's different to David. A king that is different to the kings of the nations because David is just like them. One who is just and true, not blinded by sin, who loves God's commands, who serves his people. We need a better king. And this is highlighted again and again in our own recent history. The sin of David is the sin we see in our leaders, isn't it? It's no different. Our leaders are blind to their own arrogance and evil. They put a small price on human life and so often take and take and take. The big lesson of these chapters is one we are so reluctant to hear. We are not up to the task of ruling our world. And that's true on a national and an international scene, but also in our worlds, our own worlds, that we create our own kingdoms. We are told again and again in our culture that we are the rulers of our own world, the deciders of our own fate, that we need to rise up and be who we truly are. Well, listen to these words uh, of this poet, uh, of this poem called Invictus, written by William Henley, 1875. I think it captures the, the feeling of our world now. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It really captures our world's approach to our own authority over our own lives, isn't it? Written so long ago. Nelson Mandela, while in prison for decades, frequently recited this poem in prison. So much so the words are just as often attributed to him as they are to William Henley. But these chapters in 2 Samuel show us that we are not fit to be masters of our own soul. Captains of our own fate. We are broken sinners and the mess of our world is more than adequate testimony of that. 
Our world needs better leaders, better rulers who listen, who care. We need a better king. And Jesus is the king that our world needs. Jesus is the king that we all need. Jesus is the king in the line of the house of David who's not tarred with the brush of sin and evil and death. It's misuse of power. He loves the broken. He cares for the lost. He's got more power than any king before him. He heals. He raises the dead. Yet his power isn't used to take and take and take. Instead, he gives and gives and gives. He loves his father. He obeys his father. He doesn't despise God's commands. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He's marked by profound humility. He's the divine son of God who humbles himself to life on this earth full of sin and humbles himself to death on a cross. Jesus was speaking to his disciples who were seeking places of glory and honour in the kingdom, the kingdom that he had come to bring, the eternal kingdom promised to David. You can almost hear David in their own words of the disciples. And this is what Jesus said to them. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, Jesus turns leadership, authority on its head. From being about being served to serving, these words are radical. Just as radical then as they are now, our world's leaders will always fall, always fail, won't deliver. The powerful in this world will always disappoint us, and we should never, ever be uh, surprised by the corruption that we see. Our world needs a greater kingdom and a greater king, and Jesus is that king. I hope today you've been confronted with your own evil heart and also confronted by the wonderful grace of God. The mercy that can be ours because of the rule and sacrifice of God's promised king. You see, this is a rule that we can serve. This is a rule that we can obey and trust and submit to. He's a ruler we need to bow the knee to, to take off our little crown, to stop pretending we're masters of our fate, captains of our soul, and lay them off at his feet. Our great king, our great God. Bring our broken lives, find hope and forgiveness and life and meaning and identity and purpose in him, this great, great king. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son and we pray that you would help us be people who take our crown and lay it at your feet. Amen.